Well, good morning, everyone. We are heading towards the end of our series on the Holy Spirit. And we've covered, haven't we, in the last couple of weeks, many aspects of who the Holy Spirit is, how he is at work in our lives, and the various ways in which we either cooperate with him or can, in fact, hinder his work in our lives. And on the basis of those scriptures that we've covered so far, you could be excused for thinking that um, the Holy Spirit was only present in the New Testament. And, in fact, we know that that is just not true. Um, Even the second verse of scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, attests to the Holy Spirit being present even before creation, hovering over the surface of the waters. Then if we move on and look at um, the Exodus account, we see the Holy Spirit present gifting um, certain members to assist with the craftsmanship of the, the tabernacle and the preparation of all the furnishings for the tabernacle. So you see up there, um, Bezalel was gifted with skill, ability and knowledge in all kinds of crafts to make artistic designs and work with gold and silver and bronze and cut and set stones and carve wood for the tabernacle. And this was all through his being filled with the Spirit of God. Later on, when the people um, were about to enter the Promised Land, you remember that God allowed Moses to climb the mountain and look in and see the land that was going to be given to the people. Um, But Moses was concerned for the people because he was concerned that they might be like sheep without a shepherd. And so he asked God to raise up another man And God said, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom the the Spirit is, and lay your hands on him. Later on, we see Israel cry out to God um, and God to send a deliverer for them, uh, a man by the name of Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. And then we see King Saul. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came on him in power and he joined in their prophesying. But later on we read, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And so the picture that is built up through the Old Testament is one of Um, the Spirit not necessarily being in all believers nor necessarily appearing to remain forever upon a given individual because we see with Saul the Spirit departed from him but we certainly see evidence of the Spirit being active right through from creation through all of the history of Israel Um, the Spirit is is active and part of their lives mainly working through um, their leaders the priests and the judges and kings. And perhaps the best known example of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone is that of King David. And you remember that um, Samuel anointed King David with oil and it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David who was then only just a shepherd boy and from that day forward it remained, he remained with him. Um, 
equipping him for service as God's representative, as his king. So far from being restricted just to New Testament times, we see the Holy Spirit is active throughout all of the history of, of God's people. And so today, by way of restoring some balance um, in how we've looked at the scriptures throughout this series, we're going to head back 520 years before the birth of Christ to look at what is perhaps one of the best known um, of all Old Testament scriptures referring to the Holy Spirit. And before we get there, we need to just fill in a little bit of the context. And many of you will remember um, back to when Pastor Glenn spoke from the book of Nehemiah last year. Um, and you might remember um, some of this context. So 538 BC, you remember Cyrus issued an edict which allowed the exiled Jews to return um, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city which was by then in ruins and to start rebuilding the temple as well. Some numbers of them have come back uh, but those numbers were very small compared to the numbers that were taken captive. But they came back. Those that held very dear um, God's word to them came back to start this rebuilding process. They faced a land which was lying desolate and had laid desolate for the whole time they'd been in exile. So there was a lot of work involved in just trying to get the fields back to productivity, to sustain themselves, then to rebuild the wall and the temple itself. The point at which we're at today uh, in the passage that we're looking at is that the work has stalled and it's been more than 17 years since that foundation stone for the temple has been laid. The people are probably starting to have their doubts about are, they, are we ever going to get this finished? During this time, um, Cyrus has died, Darius has taken power and Zerubbabel has been appointed governor of the area that we now know as Judah, which includes Jerusalem. So in effect, Zerubbabel is in charge of this rebuilding program because he is the governor of the, the land at the time. Now, it wasn't easy for those exiles who had returned. They faced opposition from outside. You might remember some of the Samaritans had asked to help them in the rebuilding process, but they wanted to, um, I guess, keep the temple pure and do it themselves. And so the, the group that had been rejected in that request had done everything they possibly could to hinder the work of rebuilding the temple. Um, but from within, um, having spent 17 years on this building program, you can imagine what they must feel like. Imagine if after 17 years all we had here was a concrete slab and some rubble lying around it. You can imagine there would be people who would turn away and leave. There would be a lot of criticism of perhaps the leadership. There would be probably fighting and arguing and just a general sense of despondency. Are we ever going to get this done? How are we going to get this done with the resources that we have? And this is the time into which our passage today speaks. And the records of that time are contained in the books of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra. And we read accounts in those books of what it was like for the people at the time. So in Nehemiah we read, we are in great 
distress. And then in the book of Ezra, we read this account of the, the laying of the foundation stone, which was done with praise and thanksgiving and singing. And it says, All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while others shouted for joy. So for many of them, they had in their mind the former glory of that past temple and they looked around them at a foundation stone, rubble, a burnt-out ruin, and they looked at the meagre resources that they had and they wept. How could we ever build something that would compare to the glory of what we had in the past? Now, God sends into this scene two prophets, um, Haggai and Zechariah, and we're going to focus on Zechariah this morning. And what I want you to do is, as I read this passage, I don't want you to follow along as we normally do. I'd like you to try and either close your eyes or just stare at the blank screen behind me and put yourself in Zechariah's shoes because this is a vision that he is being given. And it's one of eight visions. It's the fifth in a series of eight visions. And they all come at night. So Zechariah's already been up four times with four previous visions. And he's now in a sort of a state of half-awake kind of stupor. He's not asleep. He's not awake. He's kind of somewhere in between. And here comes the fifth vision to him. So close your eyes or have a look behind me and just try and put yourself in his shoes and see what it is that he is seeing. Zechariah 4, 1 to 14. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth 
And then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. Well, it is quite a vision, isn't it? What did you see in your mind's eye as that was read out to you? Over the years, there have been many, many attempts to depict what Zachariah saw. And if you trawl through the internet, you are likely to see a lot of images that look something like this, variations on that theme. You see a golden bowl being filled via pipes that run from two olive trees. And the golden bowl is somehow suspended above a golden candlestick. And most often it's depicted as the traditional Jewish menorah, the seven-branched candlestick, probably because of that reference to seven in that, in that reading. And if you saw something like that, then you are in good company, but you are also highly unlikely to be correct because the traditional seven-branched menorah is not known in the archaeological records any earlier than first century BC. Not to say it couldn't have existed, but I haven't yet found it. Zachariah's visions happened 520 to 518 BC, around that time. He's very careful about dating his visions in the book if you read the early chapters. And in fact, there's a very curious sketch that you will find in the 1984 NIV study Bible back in Exodus that talks about the furnishings for the tabernacle. And it shows a, a picture of the, the menorah there, but it depicts it with this very curious um, statement which says, the traditional form of the lampstand is not attested archaeologically until much later. What is more likely is this kind of arrangement. So there, there is enormous amount of archaeological evidence for this kind of lampstand being used at that time. Most often it was just a basic clay sort of terracotta arrangement with a bowl at the top which held the oil and the top of the bowl being pinched with a number of pinches which would hold the wicks. So the wicks would sit there in that terracotta arrangement um, with the bottom of them in the oil, just on the right there it shows you. And you could have any number of those wicks, but the most common arrangement was seven due to the importance of the number seven uh, to the Jewish people of it symbolising completion and, and perfection. But there were some key differences in that reading um, from something like this to what Zechariah actually saw. There are three key differences. 
The first one, the most obvious one, is that Zachariah's lampstand was made completely of gold, all of gold. The second difference is that there were seven lamps and each of those seven lamps had seven lips. So this was a seven by seven arrangement. Um, and given that the number seven has such meaning, seven by seven is just even more so, even more complete and even more perfect. So try to imagine what that might look like. Seven of those little bits, but each of them has another seven. So in total, you've got 49 lights glistening off this solid gold lampstand. It would have been a sight to behold. It would have been dazzling, unlike anything they probably would have ever seen in the first temple. I imagine that it might be something like having a mirror ball at a disco, you know, and the lights just, or when your diamond ring sort of catches the light at the right point and it just sends light shooting off everywhere. The third point of difference between Zachariah's lamp and any other is that this one was fed directly with oil from the olive trees. So in the temple, it was the job of the priests to fuel the lamp by refilling the oil all the time. But this lamp needed no refueling because it was fed directly from the source, from the olive trees. So what does it all mean? And if you don't quite understand the imagery, that's okay, because Zechariah didn't either, and the image was given to him. This is a hard passage for us to interpret, and it was clearly difficult for Zechariah as well, because he didn't understand it, and he had to ask a number of questions. But his persistence... I think is a great encouragement to us to persist with some of these difficult Old Testament texts because for him, his persistence brought great encouragement to the Jews and for us, our persistence with some of these Old Testament texts, as I hope you'll see this morning, can really bring a great depth and richness to our understanding of the New Testament scriptures. And so Zechariah begins with the first of a series of questions. And I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? So he's just seen the lampstand, the bowl, the lights, the olive trees, the whole thing. And he's saying, what are these, my Lord? And the answer that is given to him is, at first, indirect, Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now you remember Zerubbabel was the governor. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And the key to understanding that statement is, of course, the context, which we talked about earlier, which Zerubbabel found himself in, dealing with this beleaguered, despondent group of people who've got this magnificent building project in their mind but it's stalled and they're stuck 17 years they've been stuck and their efforts are flailing to rebuild the magnificence of the old testament that was in their mind is gone they're looking at a burnt out shell and they only have meager resources to do much about it 
And it's into this scene that God says, this is not going to be done by might. It doesn't matter how many people you've got. Not about the size of your workforce. It's not going to be done by power because these people were really just a, a kind of wretched minority surrounded by opposition. This is going to be done by the Spirit of God, he says. And then he goes on to add picture to that scripture by saying that the great mountain, so all of this opposition, all of these problems that you face, Zerubbabel, they're going to become a plain before you. And he will bring out the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, throughout Scripture, this imagery of the lamp or the lampstand is very important because it refers primarily to God's people. And we see this um, right back in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verse 6. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. And then in Matthew Jesus picks up on some of this imagery and perhaps uses some of this very imagery that we're talking about today when he says, you are the light of the world. Neither do people put a lamp, take a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. And finally, in Revelation, John sees his magnificent vision and he also sees golden lampstands. And when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands and then later on we're told, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands frequently refer to the people of God. And this imagery is being applied to the Jews returning from their exile. Far from being a feeble lamp, they were being depicted as something that was magnificent, a sight to behold, dazzling, beautiful, something that would have far surpassed anything in the former temple. All gold, 49 lights, not seven, and with a constant supply of oil. These people would be fueled by the Spirit of God and they would shine with a radiance that was not their own. That is what God thinks of his people. That's what he thought of them back then. And that's how he sees them now. Beautiful, dazzling, precious and fueled by his spirit. That is what the church is supposed to be in the world today. Now in verse 10, we hear the voice of the naysayers and there are always naysayers around, especially when there's a building program. And these people were people from within. This is not opposition coming from other enemy countries. This is from within. And these people um, are referred to as despising the day of small things, which means they couldn't see beyond the here and now and what they were looking at in front of them. 
These were the people who complain, would perhaps complain about there not being enough resources, about the work being too hard, about there not being enough people to do the work. And Zechariah is told that whoever despised the day of small things, they shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel. Now, for those who are not familiar, a plumb line is a, a little tool that was used in building to align the bricks or the stones. And it's a bit of an anticlimax, really, after all of the, the lifting the capstone and the shouting of grace to it, grace to it, to seize a rubber ball with a plumb line in his hand because the plumb line really is just a sign that the work is going to be happening. And it isn't really much to rejoice about. If I saw uh, Graham Andrews or Pastor Glenn out there with a spirit level, I'm not going to be rejoicing because the work's not complete if you've still got the spirit level in your hand. But I think this word has become a bit of a victim of translation. So in English, we have the word plumb line. And we get that word from the Greek, the Latin, and the Aramaic translations. They themselves are translations of the original Hebrew. So to get from Hebrew to English, our scriptures have gone through two levels of translation. And I think along the way there's been a bit of misunderstanding. So the original Hebrew word is a very strange word. It's a joining together of two nouns and it means literally the stone, the tin. The stone, the tin. Now tin is not commonly, not really ever, used for a plumb line. It's normally lead. The Hebrew noun, the stone, the tin, comes from the verb, which means to separate. The verb form of that word means to separate. And so some of the translators, the, the Syriac translators, and the New English Bible has taken their lead from the Syriac translation, they take this to mean the stone called separation. The stone, the tin, the stone called separation. In other words, this was a stone that was specially prepared for its place at the completion of the building and it would signify that these were the people of God, separated and holy from all other people. And it would be this laying of this ceremonial stone that would be the cause for much rejoicing, not seeing Zerubbabel holding a plumb line in his hand. Now, Zechariah goes on to inquire about the olive tree standing either side of the lampstand and then further to inquire about the two branches beside the golden pipes that are pouring out the golden oil. And the reply that is given is that these are the two anointed, or literally in Hebrew, these are the sons of oil. Now, if you remember back when we spoke about King David and we talked about Samuel anointing King David with oil, that was what was commonly done for, for kings and priests, for leaders of the people. And so the most obvious um, reference for these sons of oil is to the leaders of the time and that was Joshua who was the high priest of the time and of course Zerubbabel who was the governor 
Now, Zerubbabel was unlikely himself to have undergone a ceremonial anointing, but he was of the line of David by descent. So he was a Davidic prince by descent. Now, that interpretation of Joshua and Zerubbabel as being these two sons of oil that this passage refers to is in keeping with the overall... um, structure of these visions. So I said to you that Zechariah had had eight visions. Vision one and vision eight up there in red referred to the whole world, all the nations and judgment that was going to come upon them. Visions two, three, six and seven hone in a little bit closer and they look at um, Judah and Jerusalem specifically. Vision four And this one here that we're talking about today, Vision 5, they specifically hone in on the temple and on two people, Joshua and Zerubbabel. These two were going to be the instruments through which the oil, which represents the Holy Spirit, would be poured out onto God's people to sustain them. Joshua the priest would make atonement for their sins and Zerubbabel would govern and lead and defend them. And it is truly an amazing vision. In fact, an amazing series of visions that would have brought great comfort not only to Joshua and to Zerubbabel but to the people. But for us, there is an icing on this cake. It's all very well to to read the Bible as history, but in this particular story and in many of the, the prophecies that we read in the Old Testament, there is relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in this case, the icing on the cake comes in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, where we read, Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. So when Zechariah asks about these branches, the answer that he's given in his mind would refer to Zerubbabel and Joshua. But they also speak to us because... Uh, the Lord said to Zechariah, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. And in other passages of scripture, he's referred to as the righteous branch, who is, of course, is the Messiah. The Messiah would come, and through him, all of his people forever would be filled with the Holy Spirit and sustained and empowered in a power that is not their own. It's through him that the church today is sustained and empowered. Jesus would be the great high priest who is greater than Joshua and would be high priest over the people of God forever. And Jesus would be a king in the line of David, like Zerubbabel, but he would be king of kings forever. So what does this mean for us today? Is it that we just sort of become Christians and then we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're just constantly filled and we just wait to be filled 
and that's the extent of our involvement or is there something more? And in thinking through how does this passage relate to us today, my mind was taken to the parable that Jesus told of the ten bridesmaids or ten virgins. And you'll remember that they were waiting for the groom to come so that they could be part of the bridal procession. And the groom always came in the night and it would be an unexpected arrival. And so they had to keep their little lamps ready and filled with oil. And their little lamps would have probably looked something like what you've got up in the corner there, just a terracotta arrangement with a reservoir for the oil and a spout for the wick. And to be ready, they would need to ensure that their oil did not run out, that they kept that little reservoir full with oil. And of course, you know that in the parable, some of them did, but some of them didn't. The oil couldn't be borrowed, nor could it be transferred one to the other. In order to keep their lamps full and to be ready, the bridesmaids had to be in direct con contact with the dispenser of that oil. Those that were prepared and had kept their lamps burning when the groom arrived were those who had kept in constant contact with the supplier or dispenser of the oil. And so I think it is our responsibility then to remain in continual contact with Christ, the giver of this great gift of the Holy Spirit who is the image of that oil for us, to keep our reservoirs full so that we avoid putting out the Spirit's fire in our own lives. So may we all draw on him, continue to draw on him, that our light may shine and be as dazzling and beautiful as that lamp, that golden lampstand was in the vision that we've read today. May it be radiant. May we radiate with a, with a beauty that is not our own uh, in this part of the world that all may know the source of that oil. Amen. Penny's got raptured. <laughs> She'll come back soon. Anyway, while we wait for her, she's just upstairs for uh, uh, Sunday school, I think. Um, today is the last day to sign up for... Today is the final day to sign up uh, for dinner, the AGM dinner on the 1st of December. Um, and if you can pay Ming Mui $30, uh, of course per person, yes. <laughs>
30, $30 cash, okay? credit card, you charge you 2%. <coughs> $30, and, uh, and because we're going to have dinner here, so, and, and there are very limited space here. We probably, maximum, we can arrange about 16 or 18 tables maximum. So, so we need to really knuckle down the number. So if you can sign up by today, then uh, pay Meng Mui and come and enjoy. All right, shall we stand uh, as we sing this beautiful song? Verse 14, you are the light of the world. 
city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In that same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. May we likewise shine with a radiance that is not our own. Amen.